Hello, movie geeks and list queens and all the ships at sea, and welcome to A Very Good Year, the movie podcast where we invite a guest to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us about that year. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host... Michael Hull. Our guess today is, uh, I don't, I guess it's you. Um, we don't have a guest <laughs> guest today, uh, because this is an anniversary show. This is our 52nd episode, which means we've been doing a very good year for a very good year. Uh, 52 Sundays in a row, never missed a single one, even through Mike's COVID battle, even through my heart <laughs> procedure. And, uh, and that is because what do we say, Mike? Never sick at sea, Jason. We are never Very good years. sick. Never sick at sea. At sea, as Aaron Sorkin would approve of us saying. So, um, we decided to call that our season to say that okay, we've done it for a year. This is a season. We're going to take a little pause for the holidays. And by holidays, of course, I mean Mike's birthday on November fifth, my birthday on November fourteenth, and Martin Scorsese's birthday on November seventeenth. <laughs> Happy Scorpio you make season, the sauce, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. Happy Scorpio <laughs> season. Sauce. To all those who celebrate. Um, and of course, Thanksgiving and Christmas and Hanukkah and the whole nine yards. So we're going to be back in January for season two, which we will talk about a little more at the end of the show because it's not quite as simple as just picking back up. But for the season finale, uh, here's what we wanted to do. You know, we're both uh, 80s kids and we wanted to do an episode in true 80s kids fashion. Uh, and that, my friends, is a clip show. Um, <laughs> it's the only way to do it. <laughs> that's the only way to do it. If you came up on different oh. strokes and facts of life, like <laughs> there's no other way to end a season than with a clip show. Um, but we wanted to do a clip show that would follow the usual format. So like the centerpiece of the show will be a top five. Um what we wanted to do, the, the 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 organizing principle there was to pick the top five movies that we watched for the first time because of this show. The first, the, the our five sort of top discoveries that happened because of a very good year, um, and we'll tell you a little bit more about each of those as as they happen. Uh, but we also wanted to do headlines and awards and box office and a lightning round. And basically there, we just wanted to pick three of our favorite versions of those segments throughout the year. So the idea being kind of that, like, you know, if say you, the listener who enjoys a very good year, uh, would like to uh, suggest it to a friend or a colleague or, um, a family member during, during the holidays, then this would be a good episode to direct them to because you'll get a, a taste of sort of the best of 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 everything that we've done. Um, and then we'll also intro these clips with a little behind the scenes background on the episode it came from in case you're interested in that stuff. So that's the this plan. This is the here. first time that I've understood what a pain in the ass it is to be a guest on this show. <laughs> <laughs> and why Sorry, is that, Mike? You were taking a drink. I should have paused on that. Uh, because I've got to pick like my favorite of the headline yeah. segments. I've right. got to pick my favorite of the lightning rounds. Like right. we've had fifty-one really guests good guests on here. And really smart people. Of, you know, really funny. Most of them have been great. You yeah. Know? So yeah. pick like my my two favorite movies that I had never seen before until yeah. the last fifty-one episodes of this show. Right. I mean. That was a pain in the ass. It was a really yeah. good idea. It's a really good idea, but like, it's the first time I understood, you know, staring at a list and being like, fuck. Yeah. 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 Because, you know, we were, you know, we, 
on a typical week, I would say, mo- I would say almost every episode, there was at least one movie that I hadn't seen. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes there were two. Occasionally, like, you know, Jessica Pickens and 39, like, I hadn't seen four of them shits, you know? Like, I, <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, okay, here we go. You know, as, like, as guests like her, um, you know, or like Millie DeCherico, who really went for deep cuts. I So I watched a lot of stuff for the first time. And then there's stuff like Short Time, which is like, is, is that a deep cut? I don't know, but I had never seen it, and it was great. I mean, yeah. It's just, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it ended up being... This was not the the initial concept of the show, which I'll tell you about for a second. We'll start by talking about the origin story of the show, and then we'll get into some clips. Okay, good. But what ended up being the outcome of doing the show that I had not anticipated when we came up with it was the fact that, like, oh, right, every week someone really film savvy who I like and respect is going to recommend five movies to me. And there's a really good chance that I haven't seen all five of them. And it became a great excuse to like fill blind spots in my movie going knowledge, you know, and to see things that I kind of always meant to see, but didn't have like a direct reason to. And that unfortunately, and I really do like, this is like the, you know, (laughs) the knee plus ultra of a first world problem. But like the problem with being a film critic is too often you end up only watching shit for work. You know, you will have this like endless to watch list or just things you want to see, things you should have seen, things you're interested in that you just haven't made it to because there's not enough hours in the day. And that ended up being one of the wonderful sort of side effects of doing this show, you know, was that I had like, no, I have to watch this for work. Um, (laughs) Using the word work very loosely because we're not really (laughs) getting paid for this show. Um, But here's how the show started, if you're curious. Um, Basically, what happened was Mike and I had done a podcast together over uh, over two years. in two chunks called fun city cinema and the fun city cinema podcast was the, the purpose for that was sort of twofold. Like, first of all, it was initially the first sort of four episodes were just a thing to do while we were in lockdown. Like that was summer of 2020. Uh, we had a lot of just sort of nervous energy that we needed to put into something. I had just finished. I just filed the manuscript of the book and there were things that were sort of, leftovers from the book that I hadn't had space for or that I wanted to explore in greater depth. And that was what that started out to be. And then so it sort of also was, as a pleasant side note, a really good way to promote that book in the run-up to its release in the fall of 2021. So we did this podcast. We did 10 episodes of this podcast. And if you're bummed about us going on hiatus um, for a couple of months, then I would advise you, if you haven't, to go download and listen to Fun City Cinema, which has 10 episodes of roughly an hour and I think is, uh, I'm biased, but is a fucking good podcast. And I think that's really the best podcast it. anybody's made in the last 10 years. That's a bold statement. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to put it out there. I don't care. But the thing about that podcast was the, the format of it was not like what we're doing here, if you haven't heard it. It is. Uh, it's an audio documentary. Each hour is an audio, you know, an hour or so of us doing a real deep dive into a specific film and topic related to New York movies and New York history. And it's put together the way, you know, Mike cuts a documentary. Like we, you know, we did interviews with experts. We use film clips. I tracked narration. Like 
it was a labor intensive show. We spent a lot of time making each of those episodes. Like each episode is about 40 hours of work from Mike and I roughly. Um, and that was fine to do when we had a book to promote. Um, but you know, when we, when we ended it and the book came out, we would have loved to have done more, but we needed to get paid for it. So that sort of went, you know, by the wayside. The problem is that Mike lives in Vancouver, Washington, and I live in Bronx, New York, and we've been best friends since, you know, we're 16, 17 years old. And the podcast was an excuse for us to hang out. Like it was an excuse (laughs) for us to work together on something and thus like a reason to talk to each other on a regular basis. And the thing about getting to our age is that when you get to this age and you have families and you have other jobs and commitments and things, if you don't have a specific reason to talk and hang out, you will fuck around and like lose track of people. Um. And that was the only thing that really bummed me out. Like, I knew we didn't have time, either of us, to continue doing the Fun City Cinema podcast for free. But I also knew that, like, I liked having that excuse to fucking hang out with Mike all the time. So Watch some of the same movies. Yeah. Connect <laughs> about shit, you know? Like, I knew, you know, whatever, I'll do another book and he'll be watching stuff with me and he'll read drafts of chapters and whatever. But it's like, you know, it was it like actively collaborating on projects is a thing we've been doing since we're, how old were you when we did uh, Barrel? You were 20? Yeah, but we'd been doing yeah. theater before that. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. But I'm saying like you working know. together on shit we're creating. Yeah, has been 20. happening since you're 20 and yeah. now you're 46. 40, it'll be 47 you're about in to a be, few days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, so that's a real it's thing. It's a habit that I don't want to break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was on Twitter and I read, uh, someone I was following, uh, Lex G the Third, was tweeting about Quentin going on, Quentin Tarantino going on the Five Things with Lynn Hirschberg podcast, which I had never listened to. It's a good podcast. I just, it wasn't on my radar. And this had, wasn't even recent. He had been he had done this like a year earlier when he was promoting one of the versions of the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood book. But Quentin had gone on Five Things with Lynn Hirschberg. And the format of that show is she's like, you know, tell me about five things that happened in your life that changed your life or changed your direction or what have you. And he went on, he did a two-part episode, and one of the one of the five things that he talked about was the year uh, 1979 when I went to the movies every week and <laughs> when he did the show he brought um the 19 I guess the 1980 it was for you know the year of 1979 which was the thing I was glad that someone explained to me right off the bat uh John Willis screen world film annual and basically if you go listen to this show and I'll put it you know I'll put it in uh extra credit reading the link to it but you can go find it Five Things with Lynn Hirschberg, Quentin Tarantino, part two. He sits in this, and they spend about a half hour, him just turning pages in the 80 John Willis Screen World Film Annual saying, oh yeah, Little Darlings. I went to see that at yada, yada, yada. I saw, you know, and I thought it was, et cetera, et cetera. He just walks through the whole year. And I listened to that. And uh, the next morning I was taking a shower, which is when I do all my best thinking. And I thought to myself, That is a really interesting idea for a podcast to just come on and just talk about one year and all the movies that came out in that year. Um, 
And as I was thinking about it, the full format came to me. Like, yeah, you, you do news headlines, you do, you pick a top five, you do kind of a lightning round, which is sort of what he's doing on the Hirschberg uh, podcast is a yeah. lightning round. Um, you know, you wrap it up with this, you have a guest every week, et cetera, et cetera. And as soon as like all of those thoughts came into my head, <laughs> the 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 next thought I had was, "Fuck! Now we have to do that." Like. <laughs> When you are a person who thinks of shit like this, you actually are like mad at yourself for thinking of a thing that you now know is going to consume a lot of hours of your life that you don't actually have to spare. But I knew immediately that it was something that Mike and I could do together, that he would crush this headline segment that, you know, that we would sort of trade off. We, he could do, you know, the awards and box office and we would do this whole thing. We would enjoy watching these movies together and talking about them and so on. And the way that I justified it to myself was, well, you know what? This is low effort. This is low energy. This will not take nearly as many hours as Fun City Cinema did. And in my defense, it hasn't. (laughs) That is true. That is, in fact, true. But it hasn't taken as few as I probably had anticipated when I pitched it to you. Well, Uh, that's sort of my fault, too, because, like, you know, I don't want to listen to the lag Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the the sort of uh, the Zoom room lag. You yep. know, I I I don't want to the listen awkward to, pauses and yeah. I don't want to listen to people's mouth noises yeah. too much. Yeah. You know, I mean, talking is a mouth noise. That's not what I mean. I mean sure. your lips and your teeth and your tongue. You know that kind of, <laughs> I, that kind of stuff. Like yeah, not just you, me, every single guest. It's you know, it's how it's how mouth noises work, right? Yeah. So there is a sort of part of that is on me. <laughs> uh you know, yeah you could but, just you could just put out the you could just line them up and export it and put it out like which if you was wanted what to. you have which which you encouraged me to do for yeah. the first dozen or so episodes until i was just like i don't i'm not gonna do that <laughs> and then and now it's just sort of what it is you know yeah. but nonetheless it is still much faster to cut than a, a fun city episode that's very true that's very true so that's how the show came to be um, so let's, let's walk through a show. Let's do a clip show. Um, and we'll, you'll hear some segments that we've really enjoyed and you'll hear about some movies that we, that we really are glad that we got to see that we might not have ever gotten around to were it not for the fact that we are hosting a show like this. Um, so the headline segment was something that I was, that I knew I wanted to do right away that sort of the, the role that Mike had always played on fun city was we would always do a, a co-host segment that was, that was not scripted where he would walk me through sort of historical precedent and, and the real the real world implications of what are happening in these New York movies. For headlines, I said, okay, well, let's do something that's kind of like that where we're just managing to sort of contextualize the world around uh, the movies of this year. Um, credit were due. I sent him as an example of kind of what we should do. Uh, an episode of 90s All Over, which was a podcast that Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg did for a while that uh, they had to they, they had to abandon sort of midway through uh, for for their own reasons, uh, which I respect, but was a total bummer because I loved that podcast and listened to it every week. Um, and so that was sort of the starting point. And then it became an opportunity for us to joke around and riff a little bit and talk a little more about the world around uh, the movies. When picking uh, the headline segment I wanted to, to to share today, I went back to uh, 
to episode 11, which is Sean Burns. Uh, Sean picked 1975 specifically because it was the year in which he and I were both born. Um, and the reason I like this, this segment so much, and it's very simple is because Sean was ready to play. And, you know, I always encourage, I send an email, you know, when we're doing the show, like the day of when I send him the link and I sort of walk him through the format, because I assume no one's ever actually listened to the show who's guesting on it, um, where I always say, you know, we do these other segments, you're not the focus of them, but please jump in. If you have things to say about the headlines, if you, you know, if you have jokes to make, like jump on in, feel free. And not all guests do that, which I get. Um, it's easier to get the guests who we know personally to do that. Um, Sean, I know very well and have sat around at film festivals with and shot the shit. And we were just very at ease right away. And I think you can tell that in the segment and how comfortable he was in just sort of stepping in and cracking jokes and uh, having a good time at the expense of some of the events of 1975. So here is that. 1975 was not great. Nope. Uh, outside of the theater. It started with Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and John Mitchell being found guilty in the Watergate drama. So that seems good that they were getting in trouble. But I think most people felt like they were just sort of the tip of a very rotten iceberg. Uh, we're also at the end of the war in Vietnam. And we're at the, you know, we've, we're at the end of a long series of CIA assassinations and just other government fuckery. So trust was at an all-time low. And, yeah. you know, we're talking about sort of of the post-war generation, you know, a lot of people who had fought in World War II in Vietnam uh, or in, in Korea who were sort of running things now. And that's my favorite explanation for why movies were better than because people had been through harder shit and they needed, you know, a little bit harder. Like you go through war and, and sort of the depression and deprivation in that way. And you're looking for a little bit more from your uh, art. And Mm -hmm. that we are sort of a softer generation because we haven't been through anything like that. And so, like, we can do, like, superhero shit and just sort of sit around and, and, like, try and make it seem real. Or, like, try and talk about how it really attaches to real emotions. And we won't laugh the notion of, like, the good CIA guy, like, clean off the fucking screen. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So I think that, you know, we're really seeing that that, that sort of of cultural moment come to a head in a lot of ways. Yep. West German politician Peter Lorenz was kidnapped by a radical leftist group, and then he was released after their demands were met, which is like the only reason I mentioned that is just sort of there was a lot of, you know, super radical sort of hijack a plane shit going down. Right. Yeah. And, and world governments hadn't really decided that they weren't playing that game yet. So sometimes it was still working. So there was a lot <laughs> right. of you know, sort of hijacking a Brinks truck and and breaking people out of prison and shit like that, right? But 1975 was also the year Spain stopped fighting to keep their colonies in Africa and Portugal lost their empire, basically. So there was a lot of, like, shit left to hijack a plane over, right? It wasn't just sort of, you know, (laughs) there was still a lot of things to, to be protesting about in that very sort of violent the, the the civil war in Algeria started, et cetera, et cetera. The Khmer Rouge also took over in Cambodia uh, and their, you know, their standards for killing people were very low. Like if you had glasses, you know, so they were on a rampage. Um, I'm sorry. Francisco they, Franco died. Whoa, 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 no, 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 no. You don't just blow past that, Mike. What do you mean they, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> they were killing people because they wore glasses? 
that was part of their, you know, they were trying to have like a fully working class revolution and that meant getting rid of all the intellectuals. And if you had glasses, that meant that you were an intellectual. That's what I, that's, I only raised that, like, it's ridiculous. And it's ridiculous in a way that people will make a joke out of it frequently. My point is that the bar was really fucking low. Yeah. Yeah. I'm seen swimming to Cambodia. I know. (laughs) Oh, right. I'd also like to know, because it is an audio-only podcast, that Mike currently wearing glasses. Carry on. <laughs> yes, I do have a stake in this. <laughs> First against the wall. <laughs> you know, and we had just left Vietnam. So, like, not only is this stuff yeah. sort of happening, but we had just, we were participating in it, is a yeah. part of my point oh. also when we're talking oh, about the Oh, we sure were. Yeah. Um, Francisco Franco died in 1975, so obviously that's good. Hold on and launch the best running gag of SNL's first season. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. That's how I know when he died. Yes. <laughs> that's like my so that's like my how I know about Francisco Franco. <laughs> See, SNL does the good things for the world sometimes. They do. At least they did. Uh, Microsoft was founded in April, uh, and the first monster truck was created, the aptly named Bigfoot. Uh, so children of the 80s will remember that. Because it's just one atrocity after another. <laughs> <laughs> he said at the beginning, dude, he warned you. It was really, it was good in the theater, but ouch. Uh, jazz yeah. pianist Keith Jarrett recorded the improvised record, The Colton Concert, which is the number one selling piano record of all time. So give that a spin once uh, if you want to be confused. In my opinion, okay. the writing about that record is much better than the record itself. Uh, and it's okay. a little weird when you finally put it on after reading about how great it is. So that happened in 1975. Great. Uh, in sports news, Jason will relate to because they made a movie about it. I'm listening. Muhammad Ali beat Joe Frazier, literally and figuratively, in the Thriller the in thrilla Manila. The in Manila, a fine yes. documentary feature, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the Cincinnati Reds beat the Boston Red Sox four games to three to win the World Series. As I was saying about atrocities. Well, you... I, <laughs> Did you just put that in because Sean was the guest? Like, just own your cruelty. Just own it. I mean, I thought he might have a, a comment, you know. Okay. Uh, I had a record called Red Sox 75 that was like highlights from the season that I used to listen to as a kid. And yeah, oh, it, it didn't have a good ending. I was going to say, why would you put that out? <laughs> I don't understand sports random. Go ahead. Side man. one is really good. <laughs> <laughs> it's the kind of That's blue it. of sports records okay here we go <laughs> i knew i was fishing i didn't realize i'd pull up something that sweet uh, in the first ever cricket world cup west indies beat australia by 17 runs yeah i didn't have that record <laughs> weirdly i did i don't under- i don't know where it even came from it's like mom what is this the accents are amazing yeah uh, Emmett Peters won the Iditarod with lead dogs Nugget and Digger, and Arthur. Mike had that record. Mike yes. had the Nugget and Digger record. That was yeah. mine. It was a lot of like yeah. mush, mush, and barking. Not that interesting. Yeah, yeah. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to talk over like a really important sports milestone. And I'm like, let me see if I can milk this this record thing one more. For one more. We gotta go back to the well one more time. Let me see. Let me see. I think I can make the trip. Mike, what was your? What was the last thing? Sorry. Arthur Ashe won at Wimbledon in part of his uh, yes his record-breaking and fantastic career, of which there are several movies, and so I'm sure you've seen at least one of them. That's headlines. 
All right. So thank you again, Sean, for coming on the show. It was it was really a pleasure. Um, okay. So top five. Like I said, what we decided we wanted to do for top five were our top five movies that we watched for the first time because of hosting this show. Um, and the way that we did this was we each, you know, we had to do a five and there's there's two of us and I'm I'm no mathematician, <laughs> but the math on that was tricky. I really liked the first half of. Right. <laughs> um, so we each picked our two top favorites and then we made a list of sort of like, you know, third place runners up and just sort of hoped that one movie would be on both of those lists. And uh, one movie was. Um, this is Tracks, which, uh, is in episode six, uh, with guest Noah Segan covering the year 1976. And this was a noteworthy show for us because, you know, the first six episodes that we recorded, which are not the first six that aired, but the first six that we recorded, we did sort of in a bubble. We hadn't put out any of them yet. It was really just me approaching six film critic friends and saying, hey, you know, will you do this with us? Six, I'm sorry, five film critic friends and then Alex Winter. But we had a relationship with Alex Winter because he had done um, the Fun City Cinema podcast, the Death Wish episodes. Go give them a listen. Um, but, you know, basically that, that it were all, these were all people we had relationships with. And so they were, you know, willing to sort of take a chance on this thing that might never see the light of day. Um Noah Segan was the first episode where, you know, when you're a film critic and a film journalist, you get all these emails that are like, so-and-so is available for interviews to promote their new film. Um, and normally I, you know, archive most of those because I'm not, that's not typically what I'm doing as a, as a journalist is interviews. I do them occasionally, but not a lot. But when I got this one and the, you know, the, the podcast had sort of first started coming out, um, I got an email from Brad Johnson at Fonz PR and I talk a lot of shit about publicists on social media, but Fonz is actually like, they're great. Uh, and they handle a lot of draft house stuff and a lot of cool, you know, genre movies and things like that. And they were promoting blood relatives, um, which is Noah's movie as a writer and director and star. Like if you, you know, if you've watched a lot of movies, if you watch Ryan Johnson movies, you've seen Noah in things before he's a character actor, uh, and he and he and Ryan are really good friends. And so he's been in all of his movies, most notably in Knives Out. Um, but, you know, he was doing this movie and he was promoting it. And I was this was the first moment when it occurred to me, like, fuck it, maybe we can be part of someone's promo cycle. You know, <laughs> if maybe we can be in like if that'll get us some good guests who know their fucking movies, which I knew I could tell that Noah did. Um, yeah. Blood Relatives get, is good, too. It is. And it's steeped in like, yeah, it is. Yeah. It's a blast and it's still on shutter. Go watch it. But it's steeped in like, you know, movie history and vampire movies and stuff like that. And, you know, yeah. and I also was not surprised to discover that he wanted to pick a seventies year. Like he's a seventies movies kind of guy. So he picked 1976 and uh, most of which were films that I'd seen, you know, all the president's men, Rocky things I've seen a lot of times, but uh, he also picked uh, Henry Jaglum's tracks, which I, which again had been on the list forever was a movie I knew I wanted to see. I had never seen. Uh, I watched it to, uh, to prep for that episode. And, uh, and here's our conversation about it. I'd never even heard of it. Yeah. It's really good. <laughs> all right. Here's that. What are you doing on this train, Andrew? I'm escorting a coffin. There's a black man in that coffin. 
It's a great black man. Watch yourself. Oh, really? Really watch yourself. There are dangers. There are many, 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 many dangers. I take trains all the time. Just travel. I never know what's going to happen. My mother, I used to lay in the kitchen floor doing my homework, pretending to make her step over me so I could look up her dress. I am um, a, a huge fan of 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 Jaglum um and and how prolific he's been um I don't know if if I mean Trax is probably one of his more well-known films um mm-hmm. but it's this very sort of you know contained story it takes place on a train uh with Hopper as a um as a soldier who is tasked with taking his friend's body home so he's accompanying yeah. a coffin, um, yeah. and uh, you know it. It, it was um, uh, it was shot on a real train, as far as I know. That was actually going places <laughs> while they shot yeah. this movie, which of course you, you can know, feel that. Yeah, and and, and when yeah, you think about like you know when you compare it to like Cassavetes, and you talk about sort of like cinema verite, and you know whatever you feel is real, and all of these sort of you know things that people were 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 were, were hanging their hat on in. Uh, you know, in the seventies, I mean, I don't think that there's anything, um, uh, uh, more evocative than a movie like tracks, which also, you know, again, I mean, Hopper in 1976 was really, I, you know, still, I think considered the voice of a generation. He was kind of trading on mm-hmm. that, uh, for many yeah. years until he kind of fell you know, fell, fell down a little bit and had to come back. You know, it's a famous, you got to go away to come back, but you know, after easy rider, you know, and, 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 you know, of course last movie and mad dog Morgan and American friend. I mean, he was doing all of these things that were sort of like unabashedly, uh, uh, using his capital, you know, he was as a counterculture. Yes. And he was like, yeah, sure. I'll go and I'll make like a weird movie on a train. That's like about, you know, dealing with the hangover from Vietnam and, and, you know, and, 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 you know, and, 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 and reconciling all this stuff that, you know, is, is, is legit, you know, and, and yeah, sure. Eventually I'll go, I'll, you know, I'll be in apocalypse now and eventually I'll go and I'll be in, you know, rumble fish or whatever. But, you know, I mean, you know, I think, I think tracks is an example, a great example of, of a, um, you know, someone using, for lack of a better term, their star power to tell a mm-hmm. smaller, more complicated story. Absolutely. You know, this was the only film on your list that I hadn't seen before. So I thank you for bringing it to me. Um, and Mike, I think same thing. Um, it, what I found really interesting about it in terms of, of its place in in film history, I guess, is that here you're talking about a movie that was like, um, like the second after the Vietnam War finally ended, um, you know, that it's got that, that archival audio at the beginning of Nixon sort of announcing the end and so forth, like that Jaglum and Hopper were unafraid to make a movie about, like you said, the Vietnam hangover immediately in that moment. Like even, you know, the sort of the movies that we, that are sort of thought of as, our first grapplings with Vietnam, you know, the deer hunter and 
coming home and then the following year, like you said, Apocalypse Now, we're still two, three years away. And the fact that they wanted to get in there and talk about this right away, I think gives it an urgency that's that's really compelling. It's a fervent movie, which is hard to make on a, you know, I mean, on, yeah. a, on a train and, you know, on a train that's, yeah. that's, like I said, sort of going somewhere and you're stealing shots. And yet there's this kind of there's an anxiety there that uh, manages to sort of coexist with, I think, the, you know, malaise of the time as well. All right, so thank you again, Noah, for coming on the show. And go watch Blood Relatives on Shudder. That was great. the joint pick, right? Did you say that? That was the joint pick, yes. That was the one where we both were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Trax was great. I'm glad we watched that. So the next one is one of Mike's picks. Uh, this was a movie I had seen when it first came out, but Mike had not. So uh, so uh, you want to take this one over? Yeah, this is from episode 27, 2011, with Kristen Meinzer, Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. Mm-hmm. Uh, Meinzer was the first guest that reached out to us. Yeah, our first cold call. Like, hey, <laughs> yeah, I like your yeah, you know, I like your show, and this is the kind of you know, this is what I would do on it. Um, and it was one of those things where she's a prolific writer, prolific podcaster. She's had a bunch of you know different mm-hmm. like great shows, mm-hmm. you know. So she obviously knows her shit. She knows how to to get on the mic and and you know sort of keep the conversation moving. But before I knew any of that, it was just reading her pitch basically of sort of how she would cover 2011 and, right. and pitching it as a year where women were allowed to be messy. Right. Um, yeah. And it was just such a cool idea and such a great sort of, I mean, you could tell she's made a lot of podcasts. Like it yeah. was, it was all there. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. Uh, Definitely. But then Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, you know, 2011, like, you know, a lot of times when we're like, oh, I've never seen that. It's a movie from the 40s. So, right. You know, not necessarily one we could have gone to the theater for. You know, yeah. that's just sort of that's another thing we've noticed over the course of the years. You can tell what years you were going to the theater for because, totally. you know, the sort of first time watch list is is usually much shorter. Right. Mm-hmm. But this was and I was such a big Deadwood fan you know and and like i don't know if i'd ever seen him in anything else and oh wow he's so weird and creepy yeah. and crazy in this yeah. movie and, yeah and it just this was one of the movies where you know i, I have found myself really <clears throat> latching on to things where people are doing experiments mm-hmm. you know and i've mm-hmm. always i mean you know i know i'm always open to an experimental totally. film but i found myself really latching on to him over the course of the show and this was one of those yeah. All right. Well, here is from uh, episode 27, 2011, with uh, Kristen Meinzer, uh, Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. Is this Martha? You look like a Marcy May. Marcy was my grandmother's name. This is Martha. Marcy May. Marlene. If you feel safe here, let us in. Martha! Marcy May. No. This is Martha. Marlene. Martha! You're a teacher. Marcy! And a leader. Marcy May! Now prove it. What happened? Marcy May. Who is this? Marlene. Let us in. We have to leave. Marcy May! Well, we all have to Where leave. Where are you going? You look like a Marcy May. Martha. Marcy May. Marlene. Rated R. In select theaters October 21st. Starring not an Olsen twin, but an Olsen sister, Elizabeth Olsen, who is now, I would not even say arguably, but just is the biggest yeah. star of the Olsen family, right? Yeah. No, it is It is amazing how, like, when, when she first came through, and this was the breakthrough movie, that people were like, oh, she's the other Olsen yes. sister. And now it's like no one remembers the Olsen twins, but oh, she's Wanda Maximilov. Uh, yes. <laughs> she's everywhere. 
And one reason I love this movie is because I've always had a fascination with cults. How do people end up in them? Why would they want to join them? Uh, What is wrong with these people? This seems terrible. But I think that the movie does a good job of exploring the psychology around how someone might end up there, um, how somebody might not be able to just come back to reality and be amongst the rest of us if they leave, how they become psychologically programmed to see that as normal. And I, I, I think the movie is beautiful and haunting and strange and upsetting. And I like that it doesn't try to delve into the ideology of the leader or anything like that. It's really just about what is her psychological experience of being pulled in and trying to pull out of it. This is the creepiest movie I've ever seen. (laughs) It's, I mean, every time you see a Manson family or a cult situation, somebody's yelling always. There's always at some point somebody yelling. And in this movie, nobody ever is yelling. Yeah. Even when they're like firing guns and murdering people and raping each other. And like everything is very quiet, is extremely controlled. And it's like the, the sort of cumulative effect of it is the creepiest thing i've ever seen in my life great movie great little film yeah oh i'm so glad you liked it i'm so glad you liked it i mean and a lot of that too is just the tremendous control of that john hawks performance like you know he was sort of coming into prominence i feel like at the time that this came out this was one of the first sort of showcase roles for him um and it's interesting because he bears a physical resemblance to charles manson like when you see pictures of Manson, especially standing next to anyone else. He was this little tiny scrawny oh, yeah. little and wisp kind of, of scraggly a hair and underweight and yeah, all those things. Playing yeah. his guitar. Yeah. yeah, and you're like, this... this oh, that damn guitar. guitar. You're not even good at playing the guitar. Stop acting like you're good at the guitar. You're not. This movie is freaking me out. He was in, he was in <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, Deadwood. He played he played Saul yes. in Deadwood, and you know he was always he was always really good, but the character was never sort the character never really stood out. You know he had a little run, he had a girlfriend for a while, so on and so forth. But there were so many you know Swidgen and all the other sort of characters around him were so colorful and 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 bright, and there was so much happening that he was always sort of you know, the fifth or sixth note on the scale, right? But in this movie, like, all he's sort of doing the same things, but he's really being featured, you know, he's really sort of driving the, the yeah. action in a way that that he just, I had never seen him do before. And handled yeah. it. No, just yeah. quiet menace. Yeah, quiet menace, just presence. It's a real presence in that performance. And in hers, too. Like, I, you know... I'm not, uh, I'm not a big Marvel guy, um, and so sometimes I get resentful when that machine sort of swallows mm-hmm. an actor that I really like. And I think she is tremendous in this movie. There's not a false note in this performance, um, to my eye. Um, and I will also just say before we move on that uh, when I saw, it, I first saw it at a New York Film Festival test screen or not test screening, a, a mm-hmm. press screening for the New York Film Festival, and the the person from the festival who was introducing it said the title in a sing song way. She just said, "So this is Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene." And now I, that's always <laughs> how I hear it in my head, and I've never forgotten the title. Everybody else fucks up the title whenever it comes up in conversation, like the Martha Mary movie. I always get Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. All right. Thank you again, Kristen, for coming on the show and for uh, for pitching us so uh, so persuasively. Um, Okay, so the next one was one of my picks. Number three is one of my picks. Um, 
this was just such a dream guest. Um, I, I'm a Mystery Science Theater 3000 freak. Like, I... I remember reading about this show before I saw it in Rolling Stone's comedy issue circa like 1988 or 89 or something like that. Um, and it was just such an irresistible premise for a show. Like I was sold on Mystery Science Theater 3000 before I'd even seen it. The idea that this was a show where they watch a whole movie and just fucking crack jokes. Um yeah. And I saw one episode, I saw like the Alien from L.A. episode on like a, you know, a weekend where it was showing on another network because in Wichita, Kansas, Cablevision didn't carry Comedy Central uh, when it first came out or the Comedy Channel, as it was originally called. And then it merged the Comedy Channel and Ha merged to form Comedy Central. But then for several years, we just didn't have access to it. And then finally, the summer after my senior year of high school, um, they expanded their 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 bandwidth and you could get like a box, a special box where you could get a bunch more channels and Comedy Central was one of them. So I spent that summer after my college, you know, after my my senior year of freshman or excuse me, my senior year of high school going into college, just like taping Mystery Science Theater every night and watching it and catching up because by that point they were well into the run. Um, And I've been a huge fan of that show ever since. And it is really informed you know, my sense of, of criticism, you know, and, and, and film history and, and genre cinema and all that sort of thing. And I've always liked Frank Conniff so much. Like he's so warm and funny and sort of sympathetic on camera. And then they did a companion book that came out when I was, uh, I want to say my junior, sophomore or junior year of college, where he wrote in it a lot because, and that was where I first found out that Frank was the one who had to watch all of the tapes for potential shows. Um, right. Because they had such right. a small staff that, you know, <laughs> that you couldn't just be a writer or just be a performer. He was a writer, performer, tape screener. Um, so, like, however bad all the movies were on Mystery Science Theater, he watched worse, um, <laughs> which I loved. So... Uh, we followed each other on Twitter and that's a huge part of where a lot of the guests from this show come from, which is someone who was silly enough to follow me back on Twitter. Um, and then I did a piece at the end of last year about the movie. It came from Hollywood, an anniversary piece about that movie, which is sort of a compendium of bad movie clips, a kind of a, a terror in the aisles for Edward D. Wood style movies, if you will, Mike. All right. Um, so I was like, fuck it, Frank follows me on Twitter. I'll ask him if I can interview him. And I did. And it was a wonderful interview, but I came away from it very like, oh, Frank is like a serious cinephile. Like he knows yeah. his shit. Um, we should get him on the show. And so we got him on the show. And he did 1964. Um, and mo you know, some some things a lot of things I had seen, you know, Doctor Strange Love you've seen, you know, stuff like that. But I had never seen Bobo 73, which is a Robert Downey Sr. movie uh that's sort of odd and experimental and fantastic. And fantastic. It's <laughs> like great, you know, and I'd meant to see it forever. Like I have the Eclipse, you know, Criterion Robert Downey Sr. box set. I want to know his work better because, you know, not just because he's Iron Man's dad, but because like Paul Thomas Anderson, like will rave about his movies any chance that he gets. So I put on, you know, Bobo 73, I don't know, you know, 90 minutes before we were recording that episode and it sort of knocked the wind out of me. So, um, so here's us talking with Frank about Bobo 73. 
If I wanted someone to moralize with me, I wouldn't have come across no ocean to visit with you. My wife does a much better job of moralizing than you do. The fact remains, if you don't give me those 12 H-bombs, I'm gonna drain your gold for you. That's right, man. 12 H-bombs or I drain your gold for you. And this one, out of all of them, too, I, I only first saw it for the first time, like, just recently. It happened to be on Turner Classic Movies. The, oh, you know, shit. they do their, their, their TCM Underground. That's thing. right. Millie, yeah. friend of the show, Millie oh, DeCherico. Oh, great, great. Yeah, shout out to her. Thank yeah. you so much. But uh, um, they, did a, they, they did Robert Downey Sr. films uh, that mm-hmm. night, and they had Putney Swope. And, and they had this one, which I'd never seen. I wasn't even really planning on watching it necessarily but i but i i happened to to watch it and it kind of blew my mind i mean i i I was really amazed by how inspired i was by it uh it was like nothing i've ever seen before um and it just seemed to me to be the epitome of an era uh in the 60s of people not just in filmmaking but in all the arts just like throwing away every convention in the world and just completely letting their subconsciousness uh, come to the fore and, and, and make whatever came into their head and then going, you know, coming up with an idea and then going out and making it. It was, it was kind of the beginning of that spirit of, of of independent filmmaking. Uh, uh, You know, and, you know, Andy Warhol was, you know, filming the empire state building and filming people sleeping. This is kind of like, the, the entertaining version of that, I, I think, <laughs> you know, um, because because that's the thing, too, is I don't really I, I, I'm never uh, and the movie is like less than an hour long, you know, and yeah. uh, I never really completely follow what's going on when I'm watching it. But I'm laughing <laughs> a lot. It's very yeah. funny. And, um, uh, and and I just loved it. And it just came at me completely unexpected. And I was very inspired by it. I watched it and I said, I want to think this way when I write, when I write, you know, I just want to write with complete abandon and, um, and, and hopefully also be funny and entertaining in the process. And that's what Robert Downey uh, senior. A prince. Achieved, uh, achieved in this film. Yes. That's how he's, uh, he's, um, uh, listed and you know, please don't ask me to tell you what the plot of the film is. No, God no, God no. I, I mean, have no. With three three educated men, right? And I don't think a one of us could do that. Yes, and um, but uh, I, I think uh, you know one of the best um, kind of reactions to it that I saw because I after I watched it, I looked for for stuff on the internet about it, and uh, I saw a little film of uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, who's a huge Robert Downey senior fan. And, and, and by the way, there's a really, I would recommend to people, there's a really good documentary on Netflix right now about Rob called senior that his son, Robert Downey, who you may have heard of, uh, um, uh, participated in it. And, and it's really a love, lovely film. And, um, and in the, in the movie, uh, Robert Downey Jr. Says, um, you know, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson is really the the son my dad would have preferred to have had. <laughs> kind of, that's a whole other documentary they could line. do. That's yeah. like a whole other. But yeah. but but anyway, his 
I saw a little clip of him and him and Robert Downey Sr. watching Babo 73. And, and this is Robert Downey. Uh, this is Paul Thomas Anderson, who loves Robert Downey Sr., loves this movie. The first thing he says when it's over, he turns to Robert Downey Sr. and says, What the fuck is going on? <laughs> <laughs> That's like the perfect, because you don't know what the fuck it is. You just watch. Yeah. You just know that, that it was really fun. And... Yeah. Um, and 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 really entertain and also uh, uh, Taylor Mead is in it, who who apparently was like a big guy in the Andy Warhol films and, yep. and uh, the underground um, art scene of New York of at that time, and, and he's hilarious in it. Like, yeah. I kind of feel like he could have gone to uh, L.A. and and done guest spots on Get Smart or something. You know, he's yeah. he's like he's really funny, and the music is by. Uh, Tom O'Horgan, who went on to direct Hair on Broadway oh, and, and okay. directed the original Broadway production of Lenny, was a huge oh, deal in in theater of that time. So, so it really there's a lot of significant people involved with it, and um, um, and and I, I just am really happy that I got to see it. A lot of times, music and movies complements a scene. Right. The music in this movie adds to it in some way that is not uh, obviously a compliment but is definitely <laughs> adding to it well it, it's yeah. the, the, what the qualities of this movie have nothing to do with the uh, with what you expect from and, and one of the things about it that i feel like kind of uh that i kind of like too is that the the sync recording isn't that great and and in some right. ways it, 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 and, and some of robert downey's other films from that era too kind of remind me of of mystery science theater films, you know, like, sure. like really low budget with, with very uh, limited technical expertise. Um, uh, but, but going and making them anyway, and in his case, since he was such a funny kind of visionary, um, um, f- a filmmaker, you know, yeah. it, it, it comes off really well, but, uh, yeah. I, I would recommend that the people like seek out Robert Downey seniors work and, and, and check it out. Yeah, no, I, I, I liked that documentary quite a bit as well. Uh, and it was, and after I saw it, I had that moment where I was like, you know, I bought this little criterion set of, you know, like five of his movies that came out a few years ago. And, uh, and so I was glad to finally have an excuse, uh, with this recommendation to seek it out. I will not go off into a whole jag about how, if Netflix is going to run that documentary, they should like do the right thing by film culture and run a bunch of his fucking movies alongside it. Right. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll I'll let that slide. But you can. Um, but I I watched uh, uh, Bubbo seventy three over the weekend for the second time. I, I found it on the Criterion Channel. Beautiful. So. See, they're yeah. they're they know yeah. how you maintain a art form. Right. The thing that was really striking to me about it, knowing very little going into it, was it felt like one of the few films I've seen that really captured the spirit of you know what they called at the time the sick comedian. Yes. Like it feels like a compliment to like Lenny Bruce albums and Mort Saul's yeah. act and you know that strain of of subversive you know sort of coffee house time for my pmbm yeah. <laughs> that like subversive kind of coffee house comedy that's exactly right and it and it was still uh um uh underground at the time uh yep. that that um but as from a two of the other films we're going to talk about soon uh, Part of that discussion is is how that's where that sensibility made its way into the mainstream. In the Robert Downey Sr. film, it's still uh, 
underground because the movie itself is underground and was barely seen, you know, but I, but I guess he got a grant off of it and it, it enabled him to like keep making keep movies. Working. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, but yeah, that whole, and, and that's what people, the term you just used is that's how that comedy was described by the mainstream yeah. press, by time magazine, sick humor, Mort Saul, um, Lenny Bruce, um, Terry Southern, whose name yeah. will come up again. Um, yeah. uh, Jules Pfeiffer, Bruce J. Yeah. Friedman, you know, like there yeah. was that whole, uh, sensibility, which ended up, you know, seeping its way into the mainstream. And now that sensibility is, is everywhere now in comedy and in culture. But back then it was, it was very underground. All right. Thank you again, Frank Conniff. Um, and uh, we will we will work on getting some more Mystery Science Theater folks on the show in uh, in season two. Um, the next one is one of Mike's picks. Uh, this is one of a couple of of really good guests that were brought to us. I always I, I do. I again want to give a shout out to a really excellent publicist, um, Kyla Heyer, who uh, who is with Exile PR. Um, one of her regular you know, jobs is promoting the film craft series at Metrograph. She's the, the publicist for Metrograph, but also a lot of other weird, you know, quirky independent films. I mean, this is like as high end as film culture gets. Yeah. Right or wrong. Like this is as yeah. precious as it gets. Yeah. You know, the film craft series at Metrograph Big is time. as precious as our culture gets. And yeah. It's, and, and I say that like, as a person who is so happy that there's a place we can go be precious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. That this is a series that's like, you know, uh, we're going to host a, a, a really well-known Oscar nominated, you know, production designer or editor or cinematographer or the people who like, who, whose names you only know if you study the credits, but who have been involved in like many of your favorite movies. Um, and so she sent me an email that they were doing a series at Metrograph, uh, for Bradford Young and Bradford Young is a name that like, I know, like, uh, this is an Oscar nominated cinematographer. This is, uh, his credits. I mean, he's worked with David DuVernay a bunch. He did Selma in middle of nowhere. And when they see us, he did Pariah. He did Ain't Them Body Saints. He did a most violent year. He did Arrival. Like he has a really distinctive look and style and voice as a cinematographer, which I know sounds like a contradiction in terms, but it's not. Um, and so I just hit her back and I said, maybe this is a long shot, Kyla, but we do this podcast and I think Bradford would be great on it. Um, and, uh, and I was right. So Mike, um, what is your, what did you, uh, what did you pick from his episode? Cause I could have also picked a couple from his as well that I hadn't seen before. Yeah. Episode 14, uh, 1979, he chose, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, a seventies year, but sort yeah. of after what people think of as the peak, yeah, you know, or whatever. Right. But, they, but in a way, it, in a way it had sort of that peak had sort of allowed, had sort of opened the gates a little bit, I think, mm-hmm. um, into allowing sort of more stuff in, yeah. you know, I picked stalker, uh, Tarkovsky movie and it just, you know, it's a very sl- It's not the kind of movie that I normally, Normally, like, it's a little slow for me, you know, like, I, yeah. I, I want, you know, a little bit of kung fu fighting or some yeah. punchy dialogue or something. Yeah. I don't know, you know, but it's, a, it, but it's a, but 
it is one of those movies where like if you just sort of like shut up and and you know go with it yeah. you find yourself just completely stuck in it and and going along and it's it is one of the best movies it's fantastic and we get into it in the thing about exactly like sort of the moment when i was like oh wait Mm-hmm. this is how it's about me mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah good episode good movie yeah stalker зона это очень сложная система ловушек что ли но стоит тут появиться людям как все здесь приходит в движение Ваше самое заветное желание. Самое выстраданное. Stalker is number three. And I know when everybody hears the next two, they're going to be like, what? You pick Stalker over? <laughs> you pick that over Stalker? But I got to say Stalker. I got to say Stalker. Um, I think probably again not the first tarkovsky film i saw um but definitely mm. um one of the most haunting and i saw stalker before i saw alphaville so really oh, wow. this is okay. the first this so you know where i'm going this is the first time where i was like hold on i'm looking around like is this science fiction like what's going on? what is this <laughs> right. what is yeah. this you know what i mean like yeah you know I, I mean you know being arrested by genre asking friends what is this like alphaville had that way of hiding genre in the way it was executed this is the first time you know um obviously i saw you know see solaris later which is much more directly science fiction or scientific sure um but this is science fiction in the sense that there is um you know which are always kind of like the beautiful which is to what tarkovsky always i felt did the best i mean well first of all let me say this this is a cat that i've learned so much about more over the years you know so when i saw stalker i didn't know as much about him as i know now i mean this is a person who <clears throat> was always yearning for home this is a person that had a contentious relationship with home this is a person mm-hmm. that was haunted by memory this is a mm-hmm. person that was haunted by loss um Yeah. This is this is um this is a person that was haunted with um um loving loving a place that didn't love you back the same home again. Um Oh damn. So I think, you know, that that I would say that colors all of his films in, a, in every film, every film. Yeah. And so yeah. and so I think with Stalker um you know it's for me it was it was and again just just because I know who's probably listening, but just to kind of put it in genre so it all makes sense. But like, this was like, for me, it was like equal parts horror film and not in the way, not in the blood and gore way, but in the sense, sure. of, vo- the sense of void and the the journey to this, a scary place called the zone. <laughs> you know what I mean? That that mm-hmm. that you go to recapture your imagination, like this thing, this journey that these men are on really was haunting for me because there's a sense of emptiness and loneliness and solitude like a meditative religious solitude again that we know Tarkovsky Andre Rublev life of like he's a very religious in that way a very spirited spiritual I would say spiritual person so to have that journey the the human journey to walk on the path of spirit is 
evident in the film, but that's like the scariest part of the film. So I'm just saying scary, but as horror, but not as like horror as gore and violence. Um, and then there's a science fiction because there's the journey of getting from one point to another and the point that you're, that you're supposed to arrive at the zone. This place called the zone. And if you've seen the film, you know, is this place called the zone where these folks are trying to go to. And that, that place is, um, it's funny when they are, you know, kind of seemingly never arrive, but arrive is like, well, let me not go too deep on that one. I was going to go into a dark. But I mean, I, 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 for me, stalk, stalker is, um, I pick, I, you know, I'm picking it for that reason because it's the first films that, are, first film, one of the very first films that gave me, gave, gave it all this really complex layer texture around storytelling, this thing of crossing, you know, so married and sort of, imprisoned by genre and going in as an American viewer who thinks genre is everything and realizing that it doesn't mix about anything. And that film is one of the first films outside of like a highly agreement film or the film of the LA Rebellion or LA Rebellion filmmakers with film is catharsis. I saw all of that mm -hmm. thing in there. Um, there's a certain level of relatability to it that really speaks, really speaks to me. I'm not even getting into the visual style of the film. The cinematography is incredible. Um, but it's, but it's, um, you know, I, I, I just, I just, I just feel like, Again, I, I discovered that film. I discovered Stalker was on the list from 79. I just felt like it's a Tarkovsky film. How can I not put him on the top? <laughs> the, you know, the top, yeah. one of the top five films, you know, um, and probably a film that's probably more relatable to me now than it was when I was like 20 years old when I saw it. Wow. Um, I really, I really yeah. feel like I really feel like that journey that they were on the film is a journey that I'm on right now. You know, um, as you look for that space that can restore your imagination, which is when you can, when you can restore your imagination then you can really imagine your own liberation. And I don't just mean that from like political liberation from a nation state, but like, like spirit, spiritual liberation. Um, yeah. And I, and I think, you know, that film, even, 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 even beyond mirror, you know, or even beyond yeah. sacrifice is more dense and more bold and more, and more about that time too. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah, that's it's it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a massive. What, what year? What, what what year is Chernobyl? What year is Chernobyl? By the way, you remember? Eighty six. Eighty six. Yeah. So I mean, all types of like, you know what I mean? All types of like scary predict predictions, a wasteland, a, you know what yeah. I mean? Like all these yeah. things that are like prophetic. But Chernobyl had been fantasized. It had been fantasized yeah. for years. For years before exactly. it happened. Right. You know, in in movies and in books and in I, what I didn't understand the first like watching the movie this time you know, you've got one there's three characters and you think of them as separate characters because they're sort of arguing with each other and like right, right they're three separate people. But one of them wants understanding them one of them wants inspiration and the other one wants money. money. And when I was watching it this time, I was like, That's actually like I'm all of those people. That's it. You know what I mean? That's like it. in a lot of ways, like it <laughs> is it's sort of one person's you know, uh, psyche broken down into three sort of arguing characters, which also feels fucking real. Yeah. Right? That, like yeah. the sort of the side of you that wants inspiration and the side of you that has to feed children don't always agree on what sort of they want to do today. Right. Yeah. You know, right. so that, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, I'd seen it before, but I really, like you say, seeing it now, it, it was much different now. Um, as a sort of older person as an older person i mean it's also like you know it's it's uh it's also kind of uh, think about it it really highlights our distractions like how distracted we are i think too i mm -hmm. I, I, I can't go without saying that you know the cadence 
of Stalker, I think maybe next to Andre Rublev, um, really totally discombobulated my like 1977, 1989, 1990 hip hop era, golden era mind of music video growing mm-hmm. up, hype, the whole joint. Yeah. Like it really discombobulated yeah. my sense of time and pace. Um, and that really, I think, is what the film is about in a way, too, is that we have all these like industrial distractions and how we all need to go on this walk to this place yeah. that's unknown, that's supposed to restore our faith. And so I think that, you know, and, and it's being led by a person that's called a stalker. You know what I mean? Like there's some things that are really, really relevant now. You know what I mean? I guess that's also, you know, part of the reason why something like Norma Ray too is a really powerful film because it, it just, these are all films that put it all right now. It's all going down. You've seen yourself in the film right now, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. They stand the test of time. Yeah. There's an apocryphal story and I, we, we got to go on, but there's an apocryphal <laughs> story that I believe is true which is that someone from the Soviet film agency saw this movie and told him it needed to be more dynamic and, and, you know, needed to have more action. And he said, I am concerned with the, with the opinion of two people and their names are Brisson and Bergman. Bergman. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the end of this conversation. And he didn't fuck all to his movie. You see the movie that he wanted to make. That's what I mean. It's an apocryphal story, but I believe it. You if it's not true, it should be. You should drop the nugget. I mean, according to AJ, according to AJ, I think he told me this, but according to AJ, like, I mean, everybody on that crew died of can- the same cancer. You know what I mean? Everybody yeah, sure. on that crew died mm. yep. of the same cancer. And so. what looks like snow, there's yep. a point where it looks like there's snow falling in the river. Yep. That's basically asbestos. That's asbestos. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. Okay. Oh. So thank you again to the great Bradford Young for coming on the show and for Kyla for for making that happen um, and for believing in the show and continuing to pitch us guests. And we'll mention another one a little bit later. Um, OK, so the last of our top five, uh, this is my other pick. Dana Stevens was one of the very first shows we recorded. I'm looking at the the log now and it was actually show number four for us, although it uh, ended up airing uh, in the third slot. Um because I knew Dana had a book to promote. Like that's me being sympathetic to an author. Like, Oh yeah, she's got a book to promote and this will, this will, we'll start airing these in the fall. So maybe some people will buy it as a gift. And yes, let's have Dana on to talk about her wonderful book, cameraman, which is about Buster Keaton, but, but, about much, much, much more than that. It's about like the birth of American popular culture. If I may be a little hyperbolic, it's a great book. It's a wonderful, it's yeah. If you haven't bought and read cameraman yet, please do. Um, so Dana picked 27, uh, she picked 1927, you know, primarily to have an excuse to talk I'm not about lie. My first reaction was, did, did, was there 50 movies made like five movies? Made? <laughs> I definitely like I don't know my yeah. dates very well yeah, yeah, that yeah. far back in terms yeah. of when the production, you know, really ramped up and became industrial. Yeah. yeah. I was like, shit, how many could she have? This is why she picked such an early year, not yeah. many choices. Yeah. Well, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of them are lost. But yes, there were quite a f- quite a few options for her. She clearly like I mean, she was open about it. She said, OK, well, you know, she sent me a couple of options, but she said I'm inclined to do 27 because the general came out that year. And mm-hmm. again, I am sympathetic to an author promoting their book. And I said, well, let's do 27 so we can talk about the general and i also wanted to hear what she had to say about the general which she is presumably has lots of thoughts on it I sure mean, yeah, did makes perfect Sh- sense yeah. sure does sure did um but uh i'd already seen the general quite a few times 
um, because I love Buster Keaton. I had not seen Sunrise. Um, a huge blind spot for me. And, and it's one of the movies like whatever format you have it in, whether it's written down, whether it's on letterbox, whether it's in your head, if you're like a movie freak, who's also borderline OCD, like I am, you have a watch list somewhere. Um, sunrise had is one of the movies that had maybe been on my watch list longer than any other movie, like to throw it back. Like I'm 47 now when I was, I don't know, 19 or 20, I took an intro to film class at Wichita State University, which was the only film class they offered. Like, while well, we're out here, like, making feature movies in in <laughs> undergrad. They only they just had this one class, but it was earnest. It was, you know, it was, it was taught by Mike Wood, who was a terrific um, instructor and a filmmaker and had gone to film school himself. Um. And the, the, you know, there was reading for the course, but the pri- it was primary or primarily oriented, orientated around a docu-series called American Cinema, which you can still find out there if you look for it. But it was new then. It was airing on PBS. And it was just like, it was like a 13-part documentary series that is a really good primer. Like, if you're just getting into film history, it it is extremely good at sort of giving you the bullet points that you need to know to sort of figure out what else you want to dive into. And in the episode that's about the beginning of the talkies, like they devote a significant amount of time to sunrise to, into like for all the reasons that I discovered when I finally watched it last year, um, you know, why it was sort of like the pinnacle of the art of silent cinema, right when talkies were about to take over. So I don't want to restate or, or pre-state a lot of the things that we're going to talk about with Dana in this segment, but I was so thrilled to finally have an opportunity or not an opportunity to have an excuse to sit down and watch sunrise because it, it knocked my socks off. Uh, so here's this a movie on with my kid in the room. Cause I was like, it's a silent, you know, like yeah. it should be fine. Yeah. And then after about 20 minutes, I was like, Ooh, he's going to kill that lady. And we switched <laughs> it to Miss Rachel. <laughs> Uh, so here's us uh here's us talking with dana about sunrise when we talked early on about um silent film reaching this artistic pinnacle in 1927 you know and that it was going to be cut down in its prime like this blossoming cherry tree right it's this movie that i'm thinking of in particular because i mean maybe you can examine extrapolate a little bit on why but sunrise is so simple in its construction it's the first american film of fw murnau who's brought over from germany specifically because you know he's bringing artistic cachet he's bringing this kind of european eye that you know that american studios are really really interested in but don't quite know what to do with and uh and he's he's brought over after making uh you know um Faust and I mean all of these sort of grand German um, visionary movies and he makes this incredibly simple story of a love triangle sunrise it's not simple cinematically I mean as you see when you watch the movie it's an incredible work of craft and all of these forced perspective sets had to be built to create these very specific effects that he wanted to make he was unbelievably exacting in the way that he made the movie but the story it tells is so simple it could be from a fairy tale right I mean the characters almost don't need names I'm not sure if they have names it's it's the woman from the city you know the man from the country and the wife of the man from the country and it's the very simple love triangle of this man being sort of tempted away by the city temptress spending a night having these um, urban adventures with her and then in the end 
kind of going back after this very dark moment when he contemplates killing his own wife, right, in a very yeah. suddenly last summer kind of setup, uh, he ends up going back to the wife and there's an affirmation of, of home and family. I mean, there's not necessarily any clue in the subject matter of this movie that Murnau was the, the queer and wildly inventive and marginalized kind of figure that he was sure. in Hollywood because it is the story of, you know, heterosexual love story of a man who goes back to his wife. But there's an openness to, you know, real despair and tragedy mm. that mm-hmm. seems really rare in Hollywood movies at this time. And it made me think about, I'm not sure if it was an influence on or not, but the very next year, 1928, King Vidor makes The Crowd, another of oh, the God, great yes. silent films yeah. of all time. And another movie that is about domestic life, you know, a couple yep. that's sort of having trouble, um, but that goes so much deeper than that and really winds up being a film about work and about alienation and about being American and about so many other things. I'm not saying that, you know, that was a ripoff of Murnau or that the two of them were necessarily working in but um, that's... conjunction, but just that both of those movies were silent films about small domestic stories that managed to reach this incredibly profound level of kind of reflection on, on what it is to be a human being living in the world. Yeah, no, I, you know, I had never put them into conversation in my head like that. But I think you're right that that I mean, and and that sort of speaks to ideas that were in the air, I think, in this sort of like roaring 20s, this very, you know, uh, uh, hard drinking, a high living time, these these sort of ideas of of domesticity and faithfulness and all of these ideas were were certainly um, part of the atmosphere as well. What's happening visually in this movie is, you're right, it's just astonishing. The the grace with which the camera moves, the way that these settings are, are used and, and sort of blended into each other. It's just a stunningly beautiful movie. It's very painterly, right? I mean, you remember yeah. it in terms of specific images and the light reflecting off water. And it's you really remember it as a series of looks rather than, uh, you know, the things that happen between people. There are hardly any intertitles, and the intertitles are really not important, which is always the mark of a great silent film. I think that happens with The Unknown, which we'll talk about in a minute, the Lon Chaney movie. There's way more subtitles than there need to be, or intertitles in that movie, because really, the gestures and the expressions do do all the work already. Totally. Totally. So this is the point in the show where I would say, all right, thank you for that excellent top five, Mike and me. Uh, Let's find out what films we're winning. Nicely done, folks. We have excellent taste. Good picks. <laughs> Let's find out what films were winning trophies and making money. Here's awards and box office. And uh, when we were talking about what we wanted to, what clip we wanted to share for an awards and box office segment, uh, we again landed on uh, a guest that Kyla brought us from Metrograph. Uh, the Filmcraft series uh, devoted itself to Judy Becker, um, who is an Oscar-nominated production designer. Uh, Carol, I'm Not There, Brokeback Mountain, We Need to Talk About Kevin, Garden State, bunch of movies with David O. Russell, The Fighter, Civil Lines, Playbook, American Hustle, among others, that last one being her Oscar nomination. So let's, uh, so, you know, but we hadn't, like, I had never heard Judy Becker on a podcast. Like, we didn't know how good a guest <laughs> she was going to be. It was like, she picked 72, so she clearly knows her shit. And we saw the top five and we're like, all right, yeah, she's got a really good top five. This is going to be interesting. And then Judy came on the show and was just so funny and so sharp and so insightful. And, and just hearing about film from that perspective, from a craft perspective, 
Um, which honestly is a thing we were a little ahead of the curve on that because like, as the SAG strike has sort of annoyingly rolled on, it's like, make the fucking deal producers. Like you're not, what are you going to do? Just keep not making movies with actors. You fucking idiots. Um, (laughs) but I have, there's been a real upswing on like people talking, you know, journalists, entertainment journalists who don't have actors interview talking to craft people instead. And I think it's been great kind of to hear you know that perspective but she really gave us a taste of that so uh so when we were rolling through who we wanted to hear from again you know who who really had a killer awards and box office segment mike was like judy becker dude and i was like yeah you're right you're right i think i used the word obviously yeah yeah and then (laughs) and i was like oh yeah that sort of was obvious so um from episode 30 uh, here's awards and box office with Judy Becker uh, for 1972. All right, as it should be, best picture, best actor to Marlon Brando, best adapted screenplay to Coppola and Mario Puzo for The Godfather. No lies detected, no complaints. Carry on. <laughs> Very good. Yep. Best director to Bob Fosse, best actress to Liza Minnelli, and best supporting actor to Joel Gray for Cabaret. That cabaret is fucking good. Cabaret it holds is, and I was uh, on the fence about. Ca- I, I kind of now think maybe cabaret, last tango. I'm not sure which would be the one I would. I mean, that could change in my head, but yeah. The, my, my only problem with cabaret is Liza Minnelli. So, oh really? Yeah. Not a fan? I know. I like her. I think she's good. I don't think she's sexy enough in it. Yeah, fascinating. Okay, yeah, I'll go with yeah, that. I'll go yeah. with that. All right. Yeah. But I love her. I don't want her to feel bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Best Supporting Actress went to Eileen Heckart for Butterflies Are Free. I've never seen that one. Neither. It's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah. Best Original Screenplay to Jeremy Larner for The Candidate. Oh, The Candidate. That's a good movie. Yeah. 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 Good, good, tight script. Yeah. Yeah. Best Foreign Film went to The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. Uh, God, I love, I love (laughs) The Discreet Charm. I fucking love it. I love it. Oh, that that dirty old man and his dirty movies. God bless him. Yeah, I saw that movie when I was like 14, and I didn't understand any of it. So I never revisited it. So. It's worth a look. It's yeah. worth a look. Your perspective will have changed yeah, uh, sure. over the years, yeah. I imagine. There'll be some jokes you didn't get the first time, uh, <laughs> if jokes is the right word for it. Yeah. Other significant award winners. Uh, the Golden Globe for Best Actress went to Liv Ullman for The Immigrants. Which I shamefully have not seen. I don't know if I've seen her or not, but that's so funny because the Golden Globes was really schlocky back then, right? But they gave uh, a good yeah. award. Like, yeah. Well, if you it. if you want to hear really schlocky, stand by. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, that, uh, in fact, that organization gave the award for best supporting actress to Shelley Winters for the Poseidon Adventure. So there we go. There There's we go. The wow. <laughs> There's, get, get you an awards giving body that can do both. I guess. <laughs> Pasolini won the Golden Bear at Venice for the Canterbury Tales. Very good. Hats off, Pasolini. Okay. Yeah, fine. And there was a split award for the Palm d'Or at Cannes between the Working Class Goes to Heaven and the Matai Affair. I've not seen either of them. I just love the title, The Working Class Goes to Heaven. It's just a a real good title. It's a a great title. And it's very 72, I think. Yes, it is. 72. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yes, indeed it is. <laughs> All right, Mike, what did the uh, domestic box office top 10 for 1972 look like? This is a rich and varied list, let me tell this you. Is, yes, this is a very fascinating <laughs> list. Uh, number 10, everything you always wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask. It was a title. Got him in. <laughs> Got him in. Yeah. Got yeah. him in. Not, yeah. not. No matter even how you feel about Woody, Allen, not one of his best movies. Not, not one, one of his the... best movies. No, I mean, it, not at all. And he made some. I'm saying, meet Judy Becker. My opinion only. He made some great movies in that time period. He did. Not, he did. Not a great one. Yeah. Not little, little, little too blackout sketch scatter shot yeah. for for, yeah. for me. Yeah. yeah. Also, considering all the great like. You want to call them exploitation? We call them adult. <laughs> yeah, all the yeah. Like that movie needed to be a lot fucking dirtier yeah, to come out yeah. in 1972. That movie it's should true. have come out it's five really years true. before. Yeah. It's true. It's true. <laughs> Number nine, Lady Sings the Blues. Hell yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Richard Pryor should have been nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Lady Sings the Blues. I will, I will shout it from the highest mountaintop. Number eight was The Getaway. Oh, interesting. Peck and Paw's big uh, comeback picture, like uh, Getaway yeah. was a big hit when he really needed one, apparently. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know it was a big hit. That's interesting. It was. Yeah. yeah. Number seven, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the only time that an, a, a, that an, a movie that is this adult has made the top ten list, right, was Deep Throat. Deep Throat. Really? And that's even, yeah, number seven <laughs> for the year. For but that's office also- domestic for the year. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And honestly, that's reported income. Like I've done the reading on yes. that movie yes. and a lot of yes. a lot of the money that movie made just like went straight into like suitcases that mom yeah. picked up. So it made so a lot more. It made a lot more. Might than have been that, number but it one. Might have very well. I've been, seen yes. it listed yeah. as high as number four. I've seen it on top 10 of the year list as high as number four. But when they place wow. it that high, there's always a little like asterisk that's asterisk. like, we don't actually right, right, know. Right, right, right. <laughs> you the, know. the deep yeah. throat asterisk. Really interesting. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little asterisk hanging at yeah. the end like a little tonsil. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's there funny. should be another one, by the way, that says Lovelace made like 50 bucks off that fucking movie. I know. And, I and know. that's, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. Number six, the aforementioned and much loved cabaret. Very good. Lots of people liked that movie in 72. Number five was Jeremiah Johnson. That I was a huge, huge box office success. People love their Redford, man. And I've never seen it, so I can't. Oh, it's it. really good. Yeah. It's very good. Yeah. 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 Good double feature with Deliverance, actually. <laughs> Which was number four. There you on go. On our list. No. Yep. Uh, number three, What's Up, Doc? Oh, Judy, do you like What's Up, Doc? By Peter no, Bogdanovich. No, I can't watch it. I can't. I just she annoys me too much. So wow, yeah, I know. Wow. And, and I have Bab friends. slander on the pod. Wow. I, you know what? It's I have my husband and a very good friend of mine. They both love that when they're like, "You got to watch it again. You got to." And I tried. I gave it ten minutes. I mean, that was it for me. <laughs> sorry. Wow. I'm sorry, Peter. Right. You know, because I love Peter Bogdanovich also, but no. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. All right. Number two, because these things always do well. Poseidon Adventure. Yeah. Yes, they always yeah, do big, well. Yes. And big, it's huge smash. There and you especially go. Especially Shelly Winters. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep. yep. People were having a hard life in 1972. They didn't always we want to watch Marlon Brando mope around Paris, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> and number one, cue Uh-oh. the hat trick effect, Bailey. Oh, would you believe it? 
You are witnessing something quite spectacular. Complete a hat-trick! Crazy, just crazy. Remarkable hat-trick. Beautiful, just beautiful. Y'all ready for this? All right, yay! The Godfather. The Godfather at number one. Judy, congratulations. Occasionally we have a guest that pulls the Very Good Year hat-trick which is when that we have a film that was number one at the box office, best picture, and on their top five list. And you have achieved <laughs> this rare feat with The Godfather. Uh, congratulations on your Thank excellent you. taste. What do I get? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> you just got it. It's our hearty congratulations. And there's a sound Thank effect you. that will play if you actually listen when it comes and, out. And it's a rare year in general, right? When yes, a yes. great movie... It's great and gets those yes. things too. So. Yes, indeed. yes, indeed. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yes. By 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 a guest that is a, a titan of the industry. So congratulations. Oh, yeah, yeah. Someday that might happen. All right. Thank you again, Judy. And thank you again, Kyla, for making that happen. Uh, so lightning round. Um, we had a lot of really good lightning rounds. And, um, at some point when I have more time on my hands for data crunching, I'll look, you know, we'll, we'll really listen back to these and find like who had the highest percentage, um, who, who, who knew their entire, (laughs) but off the top of my head, I want to say Drew McQueenie knew, I think had seen every movie in his lightning round for 99. Um, Leonard Malton had certainly seen all of his 1935 lightning round. Um, Jessica Pickens saw the entire 39 lightning round, I want to say. And there's been a couple of others. Was it Bilga who was like offended by the notion that there was a possibility you would name a movie he hadn't (laughs) seen from the year he picked? I think maybe it was Bilga. It was like, uh, I may not remember them all, but... Yes. And the lightning round has been fun. It was just like it was an it was an idea originally that was just like this will just be a good way to 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 wind down an episode. It has it has been a joy to hear um you know the people who who have seen everything, the folks who haven't who are like, "Well, I'm going to watch these five movies now." That's fun too. Um but when it came to picking where we were going to go uh for the clip to for for this show, I said we got to we got to do Karina. We got a Karina Longworth was like, uh, we uh, was a dream guest. Like Karina is one of my favorite writers. She's absolutely one of my favorite podcasters. Like we do this because of her doing what she does. Um, she guested on the fun city podcast. If you want to go hear her read Pauline kale, which frankly, <laughs> like if I had, yeah, several, you do. <laughs> if I had several thousand dollars to burn, I would just like hire her to do like an audiobook of, I lost it at the movies. Um, <laughs> but that's in the starring the NYPD episode. She reads a, an excerpt from Pauline's review of a uh, French connection. So I had this, I, you know, when we were formulating the show, I was like, well, we have, you know, we've, we're friendly with Korea. Karina. I could go to Karina. I'll bet she'd be our first ep- our first guest. And that would be like a great launch for the show, you know, to, you know, give it that sort of her stamp of approval. And I sent her an email explaining the show. And she, s- <laughs> she sent me this great email back where she's like, dude, I don't get it. Like she was so, <laughs> she was so forthright. Like she's not one to mince words, which is one of the things I like so much about her. She was like, I don't really understand this show. I don't think about movies that way. I couldn't pick a year if I had to. I don't really know what you're trying to do. But 
<laughs> send me an episode once you've done some and let's talk again. And I was like, cool. Like, I really appreciated like her, her candor. Um, the fact that she didn't just like ghost me or whatever. Uh, and then once we had done episode six with Noah Segan, I was like, okay, I'm gonna send this to Karina because like Noah is a friend of her and her husband, Brian Johnson. And so I sent that and I said, here's, here's how the show works. You're going to have a new season of erotic nineties soon. And we, if you would be interested in making us a part of that promo tour, we'd love to be a part of it. Uh, and I sent it to her and she hit me back and she's like, okay, great. Let's do it. Uh, I'll do 93. And, um, and that's remains one of my favorite episodes. She's just a perfect guest and just a lot of fun to listen to. And I really, really, I, I tried to express this in the episode, but I might not have put it across. I enjoyed hearing about how similar Karina and my tween years were that we just spent a lot of time <laughs> going to the movies by ourselves. Um, that was extremely hashtag relatable to me. Um, but, uh, I don't know, you know, I think she had listened to that one episode. Maybe, uh, she, she fronted, like she didn't really understand the lightning round when we were going in. And then the lightning round she did is like an all timer. It's like a perfect, she knows exactly how much to say about every single movie. So here is the 1993 lightning round with Karina Longworth from episode 23. All right. We're going to put five minutes on the clock. We're going to bang through a bunch of 93 titles. Uh, just say something quick. If you have something to say about each. And so it's like, is it like good, bad, or like a sentence? You can either way. You okay. can do kind of whatever you want to do. Okay. All right. Here we go. Five minutes on the big clock, Mike. And we're off. Dave. I love Dave. Madonna in Body of Evidence. She's trying her best. <laughs> the Temp. I think The Temp's really fun. The Crush. I'm I'm not a big crush head. Three of Hearts. Three of Hearts is weird. <laughs> I I mean, thumbs thumbs sideways, closer to up though. Fatal Instinct. Uh yeah, I can't. <laughs> Falling Down. Oh god. That's all. <laughs> Harold Becker's Malice. Oh, Malice. Yeah, kind of, uh, it's just, you know, Godhead Alec Baldwin, and we have weird th feelings about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, to, to his credit, he doesn't say panties with a weird hard T. So <laughs> Know your Baldwin. Wins, yeah. He wins the Battle of the Baldwins in 93. <laughs> Guilty of Sin. Uh, I haven't seen that one. Is that Don Johnson? Haven't mm -hmm. seen it. All right, all right. I tried to lead with the erotic yeah. killers here. Uh, David Cronenberg's and Butterfly. I don't think I've seen that. Brian De Palma's Carlito's Way. Great movie. When I wrote a book about Al Pacino for French people, they were very upset I didn't include it. <laughs> the French love Carlito's love Way. Love Carlito's Way. They do. Well, they love De Palma. They do. That's well, they should. Fine filmmaker. What's Eating Gilbert Grape? I saw that a lot. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, yeah, I was over, too old for Titanic by the too old for like being part of Leo Mania for right. Titan Titanic. I had my Leo Mania like with uh, What's Eating Gilbert Grape and Basketball Diaries. Dangerous Game by Abel Ferrara. Oh, I have that on DVD, but I haven't watched it yet. It's worth seeing. Madonna, it's, I know Madonna's in it. Madonna's really good in it. It's basically bad director, but it's it's, it's worth <laughs> seeing. She's trying her best. She's she's trying her best. Uh, Clint Eastwood and Kevin Costner in A Perfect World. I haven't seen it. Hocus Pocus. I thought that was dumb. Adam's Family Values. Loved it. Great little film. 
I love Barry Sonnenfeld. I do, I do too. His autobiography is the best audiobook you'll ever listen to. <laughs> do you, are you with me that Adam's Family Values superior to the first Adam's Family? Um, I think I'd have to watch them back to back in order okay. to make a qualitative judgment. All right, there. you can get back to me on that. Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness. Army of Darkness. Never seen it. I'm oh. not. I'm not into Raimi. Fair enough. Uh, Peter Weir's Fearless. I like Fearless a lot, and I was at the Governor's Awards where they gave him a lifetime achievement recently, and he stood up and said, I don't have a speech, and was just like wearing a scarf and just kind of talked for 25 minutes, and I think most people in the room were like, get this guy off the stage, but I loved it. (laughs) That's great. Great scarf. Tony Scott's True Romance. Oh, um, yeah, I liked this in the 90s, but I've never rewatched it. Uh, Also featuring a young actor by the name of Brad Pitt, Mm -hmm. California with a K. Never saw it. Demolition Man. Never saw it. Robert Altman's Shortcuts. Love it. Robert De Niro's A Bronx Tale. Never saw it. Although Chaz Palminteri is, uh, you know, in this movie Jade, which I mm-hmm. talk about. Mm-hmm. And that made me kind of want to watch A Bronx Tale. A Bronx Tale's real good. Um, Robert De Niro and the aforementioned Bill Murray in Mad Dog and Glory. I haven't seen it, but it comes up a lot in um, when, like, there were trend stories about Indecent Proposal and about how, like, why are all the movies about selling women? Uh-huh. It's worth it's worth checking out. Uh, Robert De Niro in This Boy's Life with the aforementioned Leonardo DiCaprio. I missed that one. Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, not directed by Tim Burton. Yeah, I I was kind of a quasi goth, so I was really into this in 1993. Boz Lerman's Strictly Ballroom. That was something I saw a lot on cable later, but I enjoyed it. Swing Kids. Never saw it. In the Name of the Father, starring Daniel Day-Lewis and Emma Thompson. Never saw it. Shadowlands, starring Anthony Hopkins as C.S. Lewis. Oh, yeah. Deborah Winger, too. Yeah, I watched that when I was on a Deborah Winger kick a while ago. I can't mm-hmm. remember it very well, though. Uh, Mike Lee's Naked. Yeah, great. Blue. Oh, as in red, white, blue? Uh, yes. Great. Uh, Joe Dante's Matinee. Oh, I, I made a an early... Film critic action in Walking Out of Matinee. Wow. A formative moment. Uh, Macaulay Culkin in The Good Son. Oh, yeah. I didn't see that. <laughs> uh, the uh, the Western adventure Tombstone. Is that Lawrence that's Kasdan? I'm, no, that's the uh, that's the George oh. Cosmatos with uh, Val Kilmer as... as uh, uh, right. Is Jason White. Priestley in that one? Yes. I think maybe I rented it because I was into Jason Priestley, but I don't know that I ever finished it. And finally, uh, John Badham's remake of La Femme Nikita, Point of No Return. Oh, I didn't see that. Okay, well, we're not going to go out with one you didn't see. Um, John Singleton's Poetic Justice. Oh, I loved that. I was I, That one I saw three times at the Cineplex Odeon. Nice. Okay, going out with a bang. Thank you, Karina. <laughs> excellent, excellent. See, that's a, uh, this is going to be... Thank you. That's how I'm going to send people as an example of the lightning round of how you bang. That's through, how the lightning round is supposed bang to work. through a fucking lightning round. Yes. All right. Also, you can tell a professional podcaster because their sense of timing is. <laughs> she knows when the clock is running down before I do. All right. Thank you again, Karina. Um, what a what a pleasure! What a pleasure it was to have her on the show, and I got to do that one in person too. We uh, she was she offered up. She was like, "I'm going to be in New York on my way." She was on her way. They were taking a trip to Paris, I want to say, after Glass Onion had come out for him to, like, decompress. And she had just, like, finished up that season. So she was like, I'll be in New York if you want to do it in person. I was like, yes! And then as soon as I said yes, I was like, I can't ask her to come to my basement in the Bronx. So we... (laughs) This was the most significant cash outlay we ever did for this show was we rented, like, an honest-to-goodness podcasting studio 
um, that uh, that David Sims, our friend David Sims, recommended. He's like, this is where we recorded when Lin-Manuel Miranda came on our show. And I was like, that'll work for us. Um, yep. So so we got to do it in person and it was really a, a real pleasure. Um, so now's the part of the show where we sign off. Uh, season two, if you're if you're interested, if you're uh, looking forward, which I hope you are, the show will be back on January 14th. That is the date that we have earmarked to 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 be back in your feed. Um, we're going to tweak the format a little bit. Uh, which we're still figuring out. This is still a work in progress. But the 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 gist of of that decision is that we're covering. You know, we've basically a hundred years to play with. You know, Monica did nineteen twenty two, and that's kind of the first year where there's enough to talk okay. about. It's twenty twenty three, so a hundred one years. We've done fifty one. That leaves fifty years, and in theory, we could restrict ourselves to the remaining fifty years. But in all honesty, we'd have to change the title and, you know, end the show with a Tori Amos song and call the show a pretty good year. Because <laughs> um, we've kind of gone through all of the really great years. Like, there are a few left. There are a handful left. We haven't done 1970. You know what I mean? Uh, we haven't done a few others. But we also didn't want to... See, I am it, skeptical of this opinion of yours. I, I am stand skeptical. By it. I stand by it. And here's, here's how I know. Because... The last, I want to say, dozen episodes or so, roughly, when we've asked the guests what year they, why they picked their year, they said, well, I originally wanted to do yada yada, but someone had already done that. So I did, et cetera, et cetera, instead. Now, we but was... I think the print, I think the print, the thing that the show has shown us, yes. the thing that the show has taught us, yes, is that, I mean, you, would you, if we were making this list, mm -hmm. if you were making the list of, okay, there's a hundred years. We're going to do 50 episodes. Would you have put 1962 on the list? Yes, because they wrote a book that was called that. Before you knew about the book? <laughs> I mean, like, of course, when these guys write a book. But, I yes. mean, 62 was a surprise to me. Okay. You know, I mean, the depth of some of these years was a surprise sure, to sure. me. Sure, Like, no. I think I'm actually, I'm actually, I actually think that, that we could make an episode for every year. Well, we will continue to encourage guests to choose years that we have not yet discussed. But that's it. Now I have an off-season project. I'm making lists for the other 50 years. But <laughs> we will also allow guests to revisit years that we have covered before as long as their top 5 is it has five new films to talk about. Um yeah. That will require us tweaking the format a bit when we do years where we're There's revisiting. There's not going to be five new headlines. There's not. We, we pretty much covered the news for these years. There will not be new Oscar winners to tell you about. <laughs> for instance. So that will require some rejiggering, and that is a project for us for over hiatus. Uh, but we will do that. Um, in the meantime, we will fill this hiatus. Uh, as Mike said, we want to keep the feed warm. Uh, when we were having this conversation, I agree. Uh, so we're going to, we're going to tinker with the, we may do a couple more clip shows for you. We're going to try that out. See, uh, you know, again, just if you joined us mid season, you know, because someone you like or knew was on it and you haven't gone back, uh, we encourage you to go back on your own, but we'll also have some clip shows so you can hear sort of some of, some of what's happening for the other shows. Um, if you are a subscriber, if you're a paid subscriber, on Substack or Apple Premium, 
Uh, we will also have a little bit of new stuff for you. We're going to make a couple of bonus episodes over the hiatus, which I can tell you about now. Um, in November, uh, previous guest John Pearson, whose episode was one of our most popular, uh, will be back to do uh, a sort of off off format show where he's going to talk about his very good Fiji year. Uh, there was a year between it was like mid 2001 to 02, I want to say. But we'll cover that, of course, where uh, he and his family, including his incredible wife, Janet, who ran South by Southwest for many years, went down to Fiji and uh, operated the most remote movie theater in the world um, (laughs) and screened only new releases. This was not a like, you know, let's bring the classics to the natives sort of situation. It was like, no, we're just going to run a movie theater that will show what they would be showing in, you know, Waukegan if if they lived there. Um, and, uh, we had such a, it was such a joy to have John on the show. That's an episode that I fully encourage you to go back and listen to. Uh, but you know, when we were talking John into doing the show, he, <laughs> he's a wonderfully candid person. He did not love the format of the show. And he was like, why don't, why don't I just, why do I have to do a top five? Why do we have to do all these things? Why don't I just come on and talk about the year in Fiji? And I was like, we'll talk about the year in Fiji on a bonus episode. So we're going to do that in November for paid subscribers. So if you're not a paid subscriber, uh, be one. And then, uh, in December, uh, our, our, our most downloaded episode sort of upon its arrival. And it has held that spot throughout the entire season was, uh, Mr. David Sims of the blank check podcast and of the Atlantic. And so David's going to come on in December to, uh, to talk about the very good year of 2023, uh, we'll get his fresh thoughts on the best movies of the year that we are currently living through. So that, again, won't be, you know, tight to format or whatever. Like, you guys don't need to hear headlines from 2023. But we will talk about some good <laughs> movies from the year and some things that we uh, that we recommend you check out. Um, all right, Mike, before we do the sort of regular end of the show stuff, anything else you needed to you wanted to say uh, about uh, these 52 weeks of of doing this here podcast? No, this has been great, dude. I mean, you know, yeah. I don't uh, do film criticism, but I do a lot of research watching, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of sort of... So this has been... And, you know, just as you've said, to sort of break out of whatever list I've had yep. or whatever my, you know, standard sort of people that I read and so on and so forth, and just to have movies sort of tossed at me from so many different directions yeah, um, has been just really brilliant. Uh, and I don't know, I mean, there's, I don't know of other, of other shows that sort of have that, you know, where you can tune in and get your 1938 recommendations. <laughs> I mean, I think that, you know, it really is like you've managed to come up with something genuinely original and it's been a hell of a lot of fun and it's been an easy listen. So well, good. thanks well, everybody you. for joining us and thanks yeah. Bailey for bringing us together. Absolutely. All right. And now we're going to throw it to our friend W. Axel Foley for a quick PSA. Head on over to your favorite podcasting app. Give us a star, a rate, a review. Give us a written review and tell us that you love us because that's what lets people know that we're here. As usual, I am Fun City Cinema on Instagram, Jason Dash Bailey on Blue Sky and Letterbox, where you can find under my lists the top fives for every episode of the show, including this one, I guess. I'll put this one up. Uh, Mike, where can the people follow you? I am at Brainwash Lib on Twitter and Fifth Column Films on Blue Sky. And if you joined us late in the season, go back and listen to some old shows during the hiatus, or even better, get a premium subscription and listen to some bonus episodes. The bonus episodes are a lot like what we did this week, where it's just me and Mike shooting the shit, talking about mm-hmm. movies. 
Um, you can do that via Substack, a very good year.substack.com, or upgrade your Apple Podcast subscription to premium. Uh, so thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. It was a very